Thanks for tuning in to this special bonus episode of Thank You, Now What? In support of Women's History Month, we sent out a call to all the great female veterans we've had on the show so far, asking who could come back for a sort of roundtable discussion among women who'd served. All expressed an interest in participating, but as you know, it's not always possible to schedule everyone. And we greatly appreciate Andrea, Sally, and Karen for their contributions to our show already. Up next, you'll hear a remarkably thoughtful, authentic, and engaging conversation among some incredibly impressive female veterans, Tara Hyger, Katie Neff, Hannah Ambrzewski, and Megan Mobs. Each of them has been featured on our show, and if you haven't listened to their episodes, we strongly encourage that you make it a point to. We're certain that you'll need less convincing an hour from now. Before starting, we just want to add that any views expressed or statements made belong to that person alone, and that we're here to honor people's lived experiences. And lastly, the show is brought to you interruption-free by our beloved Patreon patrons, as well as those listeners who have so generously contributed to this show's production since we began almost a year ago. Thank you. We wanted Megan to kind of take the lead on this because she's partnering up with one of my old teammates, and they're kind of exploring making their own show where it's kind of like the um uh they'll speak directly about transition issues and uh, i think that we are happy to be the who if they are happy to be the why how and the what and so we wanted to get her a little uh you know we still wanted to have this call one way or the other but i figured what what better way uh to to nominate a more appropriate host than me for the episode so anyway, Megan, it's it's over to you. It's, uh, it's, it's your show right now. All right, y'all. So thanks, Matt, for that introduction. So I sent you guys over an email kind of with what I was thinking for the format of the show. I hope you were able to take a look. If not, I'll just kind of run through it real fast. I'm going to have each of you kind of give your background and your past, what you feel like are the highlights that you really want to hit. So we'll kind of do that roundtable style. I'll probably come back in and ask you guys some kind of direct questions about some of the things that you brought up. We'll go into where you are now, so what you're doing today after transition. And then I want you guys to all speak to how your service got you where you are now or how it maybe didn't serve you well to where you are now. And then we'll get into kind of what I hope is kind of the meat of the conversation, which is side effects of service or hot topics. Um, Would you want your daughter or your sister to serve? Would you recommend service to them? Um, How did we handle family issues during service? So kind of feel free to jump in. I want it to be a conversation uh, about us being very honest about some of these things. I think Matt, Ben, and I all want to make sure that all all of us know that there are a lot of barriers to women at times, both in service and post-transition. And we want to make sure that we're offering also the positive sides of things too. So not too heavy in, these are all the things that are, that gone, have gone wrong or could go wrong, but also talking about how we overcame because all of us have in our own way, overcame a lot of the different things that come along with service. I think that's great. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tara, it's great to see you again. I was going to say, hi, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, pleasure to meet you. I feel like we've met before You have. She, Katie was at um, SEPA Vets for Beer and War Stories. Yes. Oh, okay. I was like, you, you did look say so that, familiar. Tara. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Nice to see you again. Okay. It's good to see you too. So the only one I haven't met then is Hannah. Okay. And now she's Same. dropped off. Yeah. We can give her a second or you guys can start. And then if you want to catch her up on whatever the topic is, uh, we'll cut out all of the admin dialogue. Perfect. Okay. Preference of who goes first? Katie. All right. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Tara. Sure. I'm Katie. Uh, In case, you know, learn the sound of our voices through this. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps as a combat engineer officer, and I got out in 2015. 
Notably, I took a year off to figure out what I wanted to do next. And then I spent what ended up being three and a half years at uh, business and policy school at Columbia University. And I am now living in Dubai, uh, working in the private sector. But right before that, I actually worked at the social enterprise center that is connected to the business school. I would just say overall, I'm just uh, probably like most of us here trying to do good in the world while uh, make a living. Yeah. Katie, I've heard some from so many people who wish they did exactly what you did is take that year off post service transition in order to kind of figure out uh, what they wanted to do or how to get their feet underneath them. So in a few minutes after we finish introductions, I want to circle around to that and get your your take on that year off and what that looked like. Um, but Tara, you've been on the show before. Can you give us a quick background of you um, and what you're doing now? Sure. So I joined the military in 2005. I think Hannah and I were at AIT at the exact same time. I was a 96 Bravo and I listened to your podcast and I left um, the summer of 2006. I left Fort Huachuca. So may have been in the same group. I was an Intel analyst for six years, deployed to Iraq, and then became a psychological operations NCO, I guess. And then after uh, 2013, I decided when my husband and I had our first baby that it was time to leave the military for active duty. I stayed in the reserves. I'm still in the reserves. And then I also took a year of really, I didn't take it off, but I should have. Katie, that was really smart. That was a really hard year. I think that's a really important thing to talk about. Um, especially when you're balancing babies at the same time. And then eventually I found myself also at Columbia and I just finished policy school in 2019. And now I work for an international media communications firm doing work uh, all over the world. It's pretty exciting stuff, but we do projects for governments, big international government organizations. I'm in Tampa right now and it's warm, which is wonderful. Better than New York in that sense. Can I just say, um, I took off because I needed some me time without like any responsibilities. Tara is like a mother still in the military, going to school, doing everything. Definitely can handle a lot more than than I think I can. I think my thing was I should have taken a year off, Katie. I should have. (laughs) That was very smart of you. Yeah. I juggle nothing. (laughs) All right. I guess it's my turn. Okay. And name's Hannah. So Tara, I did leave the service uh, in AIT. It was 2006, April 5th, exactly. But Hannah Brzezinski went into the Army as a 96 Bravo, so intelligence analyst. That's where I, I met my husband in BASIC, and we went together through AIT. 15 years later, still married. But I did the same kind of thing. Got out after we found out we were having our first kid that we tried many, many years to have. So we got out, I think about a little bit under a year after she was born, uh, got out of the army. I was doing online schooling to try and finish my degree. And while I was doing that, I kind of transitioned into something like a, cause we, I mean, everybody knows we got used to doing PT outdoors. So I did that with my kids and took over that franchise. And so my husband and I got the opportunity with uh, Teed Up for the Troops, it's a nonprofit organization that gives out this grant, gives out this loan. So we uh, were afforded the opportunity to get that, to open up our first Anytime Fitness gym. So we have a gym here in the Moore County area, right around Fort Bragg. And once that one 
you know, did so well. We were like, what are we going to do next? So we opened up another one. So we're sitting here with two gyms in Moore County, Fort Bragg. That's incredible. And all of your stories, right? I think this is often what we find in servicers, like the party game, six degrees from Kevin Bacon. I feel like in military service, it's one degree from someone else. Like we all have these concentric circles of people that we know. And if we don't have those people, we have similar experiences. So I do want to circle back to this idea of a year off. Katie, I know you were saying Tara was juggling a lot, but even just the psychological effects of leaving service, that's a lot to juggle too, even if you don't have the added layer of a family or of children. So I kind of would like to hear what drove you to take that year. Um, and then Tara, your reflections on why you wish maybe you had take, taken that year. So I knew working at boot camp, I was working just crazy hours. And um, I was married at the time. My, uh, my then husband was going to grad school and I thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to just decide. I needed a break, I needed to clear my head. And I, I think it just felt right. I had saved a little bit of money and I just wanted to dabble, see what's out there. So I thought, you know, um, I had this huge identity in uh, the Marine Corps. This transition itself was scary. I wasn't totally convinced that I wanted to, to leave anyway. I had, it was a bittersweet departure because I, I loved it so much. And I would say like a lot of veterans, maybe, well, maybe I should just, I don't want to suggest that other veterans resonate with this, but the transition process is like a week of um, formal training in what your military specialty might equate to outside of the service. And essentially I thought, well, I don't, I'm not getting out to go do what I did in the civilian world. I want to do something else. And that, so not that it's it's not wrong that, that there is that, because sometimes it can help you build a resume, but I thought, okay, like, what else is there? What's going on in the world and how can I understand uh, my options? So that's really what, what led me to do that and um, just chill out. I mean, it was awesome. I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. Tara? So I was enlisted and um, when my husband and I left, he was in E7 and I was in E6 we were at the 10 year mark and people were like, don't leave the army. Don't leave the army. If you do, you're going to, you're going to essentially you're going to die. Right. Like there was like this big doom that all these like senior NCOs and officers put over you that if you don't, if you're not ready, this is the worst decision you can ever make. And I think we had this idea that we had to prove them wrong and to prove them wrong, you have to leave the military for something better. Right. Otherwise you're leaving. And it's kind of this like, well, you shouldn't have done that because the military was clearly better. So Chris and I, at that time, we both already had our master's degrees and we were very confident that we could find something better. But what we didn't know is that we were not very good versions of ourselves in the sense that we didn't know how to be civilians. We also didn't know how to be parents and we had a four-month-old. That was one of those times when we didn't know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And and we didn't know that we didn't know how to be people yet, like just civilians, right? Like how to how to navigate politics of an office or how to navigate hours and days off and sick leave and all of those things that were just, are you, can you just take it whenever you want? Like we don't need a mileage pass, you know? Like there's all these like weird things that I think we needed a year to figure out. And I'm glad we, we had the job we did. We moved to Cleveland and we bought a house. Like we were all in and we were only there, ended up being there for, for a short period of time. 
but we joke now whenever we have a close friend leaving the military and they've got all these big plans and, you know, and we look at them and we're, we're kind of like Chris and I look at each other and we're just kind of smile like this is going to have to be their, their leaving the military job, right? Like I think everybody has their leave the military job and, and it's this, it's this place where they can go and make a lot of mistakes and not stay very long because they're going to have to leave because they didn't do a good job being civilians. And it's, it's just a place where they go to, to transition. And then this is just kind of a side note, but I think about this when I was at Columbia at SIPA, we, we study DDR, which is demobilize, disarm and reintegrate. And we do this around the world um, in other countries. Like if you're looking at the FARC in Colombia, or you're looking at, you know, any, any combatant organization, we, the international organizations commit a lot of time and money to these troops. And by troops, I just mean non the combatants. We spend a lot of time, like we remove their weapons. We put them in a place where they can transition for six months before we let them re reintegrate back into society. And I always wonder why we don't do that in the military. I, I get that we're, we're like civilian military people. We're not combatants in that same sense, but why do we not in invest that same amount of effort in how to transition and reintegrate that we do in a lot of these other places that have all of these non-state actors, I guess is what I'm trying to think of. Tara, you're like talking my love language because as you know, and for those that don't, so I'm a PhD uh, candidate in clinical psychology at Columbia where all my research has been around transition stress and trying to understand why it is seems to be particularly challenging for service members as they leave active duty and transition into the civilian sector. So I, I've looked at all the psychosocial components and what we know is that it's, it's a remarkably ubiquitous experience to experience stress and challenge during that transition. So I couldn't agree more, Tara, as you were talking about that, but I was so struck by what you said that when leaving, I want to prove them wrong so I have to leave for something better. And I guess in my mind, my immediate thought was, well, how do we define that? How do we define better? And then I thought to Katie, you were speaking about that transition course we all have to take. And I remember sitting next to an E5 and we had to like come up with our career plans and what we were doing when we left at the end of that week. And his plan was to open up a CrossFit gym. I have no idea if he was successful. I have no idea if he did, but Hannah, we have here you here you set up a gym, right? You have, you are an entrepreneur, you started a business. And I remember at the time I had my acceptance letter in hand to go to a master's program. I thought I had everything figured out. And then I was like, well, this guy, he just says he's gonna open a gym, that's his plan. And it goes back to one that better is obviously gonna be a very subjective thing. But from, Hannah, from your experience, being an entrepreneur, leaving and beginning that journey, what was that like for you? That was not my goal. That's not, that wasn't my plan. I chose the intelligence analyst position when I first joined, like there were so many other options and they kept trying to like shove me into a different one that like they needed at the time. And I was like, no, I want this intel analyst because I'm going to use this when I get out. Never did. Never ever did. Never. Nope. Not, I mean, I tell, I joke with my husband a lot because we, in our gyms, we have like security cameras everywhere. And that's one of the things I love doing is like, um, knowing somebody's like history and then like, oh, well, this happened. So let's review the footage. So I'm like, I'm such a nerd on like watching things and then like learning somebody's story and then like trying to put a pattern together and things like that. So in that kind of sense, I'm, I'm a little weird with doing that and using my Intel analyst mindset, but I had no idea that this was going to be our path whatsoever. I was never in my brain that we were going to open up 
or own like one franchise, go to another franchise and open up two gyms down the line that was not in my registry whatsoever. I was just, I wanted to be a great mom and I wanted to get out and spend time with my kids at the time, which now I have two beautiful little girls, but I, I didn't know that was going to happen. The same kind of thought like uh, Tara was saying, most of my military career, I was always like gussied up with like the senior NCOs or the you know, this, this, the senior uh, command, because I was always S2, G2, C2. So everybody's like, oh, Hannah, you're going to do great. You have such a great mindset. You're such a go-getter. Like, they had, like, this vote of confidence, like, I'm going to move on to bigger, better things. And I was like, well, you you have much more confidence than I do in myself, because uh, <laughs> I am not uh, thinking like that. Like, thank you very much. Like, I hope you're right, um, but I don't know what that's going to look like. But I had the same mindset as Tara, like, well, whatever we do, like, I hope it, I hope it goes well. Like, I hope it, it's something better and I'm still making a difference. I'm doing something that's important. I think it speaks to exactly what we've kind of touched around, which is like transition is just that. It's, it's kind of constant influx. We think we know, we have no idea. Tara, you said that this kind of, uh, your first job is a place to transition itself. Um, and I think a lot of times what we go into after service maybe isn't where we think we're going to end up. And so that kind of leads me to ask all of you in your own ways, how did your service get you where you are now or how did it not? Hannah, you spoke a little bit about that, uh, but do you feel like service allowed you to be successful in what you're doing now? Or do you feel like perhaps not, maybe it was a double-edged sword in some way? For myself, I think it it, it definitely put me in a position where I can succeed at what I'm doing currently, being put in a position as somebody who's briefing generals every day, you have to be perfect, you have to be, you know, succinct, you have to have everything dress right dress. And if you don't, then uh, I'm not allowed to cuss, but SHIT goes down the drain. Um, and you get a lot of backlash. So I think that's, that's helped me a lot in our gyms. Like I am, Tristan and I have the highest standards of everything. Like if things don't look right, fix it or get it out or get something new. Um, we have very high standards in the gym. And I think for me, it helped for what I'm doing now. The Army gave me a lot of rules, regulations, and things to follow. And I feel like it. I go to that. Like if somebody doesn't have an answer, if Tristan and I are out of the, out of the space and I'm like, hey, every issue has a solution. So go to the SOP book. If you can't go to there, you know, you should find it here. There's always a backup plan for everything. There's not one single way to get something done. I, I hate when I see people do it once, fail, and don't do it again. Try again a different way. I feel like the Army gave me that because I don't think that was in my mindset before I joined whatsoever. I feel like I tell my daughters all the time. I have two daughters as well. I'll say things like fail differently or fail different. Like find ways to try something different or new. And I feel like the Army gave that to me as well. What about you, Tara or Katie? What about your experience in service? Do you feel like it set you up for success now? Yeah, I would say overall, definitely set up for success. And much like you were saying, Hannah, I think just being willing to take a risk or a perceived risk from some, even in school, in grad school. So I I volunteered to be the teaching assistant for a pilot course, and the two professors needed me to figure out what we were going to do for five days in Ohio with 26 students. We did this basically sight unseen, and I was calling all of these organizations trying to convince different business entities like CEOs and then some nonprofit organizations and labor union leaders 
that we would be worth their time. And I don't think that any of us sitting here would think that that's too difficult to say, hey, here's what we're doing. Would you be willing to host us? But I think that that might be a norm coming from our backgrounds or like, I just thought, okay, this sounds cool. Let me let me give it a try. So I think in that way, being being willing to take the risk and yeah, if, if I screw it up, okay, we'll figure it out. In terms of maybe a challenge that I felt I wasn't set up for, two things come to mind for me. One is I knew I wanted to do something different, but I still, during graduate school, I still went to all the presentations about like working for every government agency I possibly could. I'm like, oh, maybe I could be in the CIA and go work on their operations side. You know, maybe I can like, how can I go maybe work like some security job and get back in the fight? It's like, just try something different. It's okay. It's hard to break away from that. So being okay with different and then unreasonable competitiveness. I thought I had to be just the tip top of everything. When I go to business school, I'm going to be the top student. At policy school, I'm going to be the top student. Well, guess what? I wasn't, and it all worked out just fine. And I think that that's, that's hard to, to break free of a little bit. Yeah, I don't know if they should put that in the transition out program that you're recommending, Tara, but maybe that's, that's a start. <laughs> I think a lot of your competitiveness, Katie, is just who you are. <laughs> well, maybe there's a hint of that. <laughs> Because I don't know how many people who aren't competitive would be decide to be a female Marine Corps officer who didn't have a little bit of competition <laughs> ingrained. You just fall into it. You went to the so. Naval Academy too, right? <laughs> so I feel like... <laughs> After a fifth year of high school. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> Get those grades up, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So Katie, I love your kind of pull to get back in the fight and it being hard to break away from that. I hear that so often from people. I know I've felt that pull at times too. And so how do you, so you said try something different, but when we feel like, and all of us, right, serve during a time of war, when we feel like people we still know are still kind of engaged in that fight, whatever that may look like, whether it's actually overseas or in the defense sector, how do we begin to break free? Or how did you all break free from, the, from some of that mindset of like, it's okay to step away. It's okay to not be in that fight anymore. I can go first. So during that year that I was transitioning, I wasn't happy and I knew that something needed to change. And I knew that everything that I hated about my job at that time had to do with its just closeness to the military, right? It's such an easy transition to go from like a military career to a job that supports the military in some way. So I needed to make a clean break. And I decided to go back to grad school. And at the time we were living in Cleveland. So I attended Cleveland State University and I was studying the most random of topics. It was just urban studies. And I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. So like, I'm studying urban studies in Cleveland and I'm learning about the whole world that I didn't even know existed. You know, I'm learning about housing policy and I'm learning about public transportation and I'm learning about land use plans and, and all of these things that I just took for granted. And, and, and it's, it made me realize how much I didn't know. And I read a quote a couple of weeks ago and it was something about go to grad school so you learn something and you and you arrive at grad school thinking you'll walk away having known, having learned something and then you leave grad school and you realize all of the things you didn't know and you leave with this bigger picture of a world that just makes you feel even more dumb because there's so much out there you didn't even know existed and i think that was a really good transition for me 
to do that and and go spend time in in a graduate program around people who didn't think like me because it had been over a decade at that point that where I had sat in a room that was filled with people where I was the only one who had served and that was a really eye-opening experience and I think about that a lot as I talk to other people who who leave the military but don't really leave the military world and I always wonder like when's the last time that person has sat in a room where not where every single person in it was not in the military. And, and granted, that's hard to find, especially if you leave the military and you have a really big network in the military and that, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it was those moments when I was in those rooms that I was starting to realize like there's so much out there that I want to know. And that really helped me make that leap away from, from it. Could you ask the question again? <sighs> it was just that you brought up this idea of kind of breaking away, breaking free and and not feeling the pull to get back in the fight. And I hear that so often, but I'll be honest, I hear it mostly from male veterans. I very infrequently hear it from women for a lot of different reasons. But I think some of it is what some of us have all touched on about leaving because of family reasons as well, whether it was kids or not. So if you want to answer the question, it was about how do you break away from that pull to get back in the fight? whether that is literally as in like being back on the front lines, like working like in something like the CIA doing operations or even just kind of pulling away from anything DOD or veteran adjacent. And do you feel it's necessary? I think it can be healthy just to try. Like you were saying, Tara, I don't think it's wrong to stay in that culture. It's a great group. What I did when I first got out, it was go get a 200 hour certificate as a yoga teacher, which was like a an, an extreme flip. And I, for whatever reason, I seem to like to just jump into these, um, I don't know, 180 situations to just see. I like to experiment and maybe like on like a very tactical level, I, like I said this when we first spoke with Matt and Ben, but like tactically being a civilian, you can't correct people for showing up late. You know, like, hey, hey, devil, you know, the door is closed. You need to be here on time. You know, like that just doesn't fly. But knowing that, okay, well, I guess I learned that that's not okay. Um, and I also met other people that I liked that were different. So I think that's how I started to try to do that. I think one of the most shocking experiences for me in grad school was when someone walked in 15 minutes late to a lecture with like a venti coffee and just like did not care that they were walking in that late and had like no shame, just walked to their seat. And I remember sitting there being like, is this real life? Like people can just do this. They can just show up late and there are no consequences. So I had a very similar reaction to, to that. But Hannah, I'd be interested because earlier you were talking about how in your business, like there is SOPs, there are these standards. And so is there a way, do you feel like that that does happen somewhat in some areas or some business sectors where you still kind of have that regimented thing that you have to keep or not? For, for where we work, it, it definitely happens. If somebody is a minute late or even right on time, I get severely upset. And I even when like I first hire, like I let them know, like if you're 15 minutes early, you're on time. I, I don't mind paying you extra if you come early, clock in early. Because I, I tell them like, hey, if you if we open up at nine and your shift is at nine, don't come at nine. Come you know 15 minutes early so you can open up, make things look presentable for our guests, our members people coming in. We have a lot of veterans or military, somehow family-membered 
so our staff has some kind of military ties. So we have people that their dads are in the military or they're a veteran themselves, their spouse is still in some kind of tie. So they have some inkling of all of my terms and acronyms and things like that and my nuances that I have as far as like things being on time, dress right dress. Like if you if you can't figure out, go to the next chain of command. Even some of our staff, like <laughs> they had a, an issue the other day and he's like, well, I'm sorry, like chain of command because they, they're better themselves. And he's and Tristan's like, man, if you have an issue, you can skip it. Like skip that supervisor and come to me. But we have a lot of staff members that still have that very much ingrained um, in their minds because that's, I mean, we live in a town where most of the people are here that live here are military or retirees. So how people act, speak, it's ingrained in what we do every day on on a daily basis at our our facility, at least, and, and where we live. Do you feel like it's gendered at all? Not to just kind of jump right in there, but the idea of being very kind of forceful, direct, Kurt, right? Those are all things that make you very successful in the military, being aggressive in many different ways, whether it's interpersonally or also obviously in combat. And I've heard from other women who said that that doesn't translate as well. That doesn't transfer as well to the civilian sector and actually causes them more problems than not because some of it's around expectations of how they interact. Um, but I would be really interested to hear all of you, you guys are all operating in different kind of employment sectors, how you feel that that's translated, that kind of go get them, aggressive, at times can be very curt. Uh, do you feel like that's been uh, a boon or beneficial for you? Do you feel like at times that that's caused some challenges? I think that was part of my transition year struggle was not understanding who I was without my uniform and not understanding who anybody else was with the uni- without a uniform. How do I talk to people who I don't know if, if they're higher ranking than me and, and whatever? I don't know how much of it was gendered, but I do know that there are times where as like just a type A personality, I will say things or do things that are pretty direct, but people will say, oh, Tara, she's in the military, you know, and they'll kind of slide that in there to make it be like, oh, you know, like you'll have to excuse her. She was in the military, you know, and and it's just that kind of assumption, I guess, is, is made that it's it's okay for me to do that which I enjoy because I think I would have been this way regardless of the military, but it's kind of an excuse now to just kind of be that way. Uh, So I haven't found, I haven't found personally that to be an issue. I'm going to agree with you, Tara. I, I actually haven't found that to be an issue either. In terms of being curt and direct, I think what I found at least in maybe more of the private sector environment or just civilian world in general is that's just not as normal. So I was in a class and I don't want to like, it's, I don't, I'm nervous to like say this, but I'll try. So it was like a, a public speaking class for business school and it was, it's a really popular course, but one of the pieces of a lesson we had was like men tend to struggle with this in speaking and women tend to struggle with this in speaking. And I was like, Oh, hands up. I have an issue with this. First off, are we creating self-fulfilling prophecies? Or like, you know, you're just telling me that this is how I am and you're telling me that this is how a guy is, which was very direct at the moment. (laughs) And uh, the professor was receptive and like actually we talked after and I had wanted to work with him to do like a little bit of study on this, but presenting that in a class and telling people how they are because because of their 
sex or gender just didn't seem like a good thing to me. And the class like went silent and then I felt a little bad. But I think that to me just felt a little bit like training people to think that this is how you are just because of some sort of characteristic you have. And that's a little bit of a tangent, but. No, I don't think it's a tangent at all. I think it's a a point well made. And so do you at all, or does anyone feel at all that the kind of hyper-focus at times on perhaps gender differences is doing us more harm than good? Or do you think it's a necessary shift? What are your thoughts on that? When we first opened, I just want to say this, when we first opened our first gen, because the way we got it was a veteran gets, you know, a grant and a loan to open it. And I still get it. We're, this is year five of our first club. And I still get it where they're like, oh, where did your husband serve? Is he still in? He's the one that served. He's the one that did it. And I just get, I used to like dispute it. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, he did get it. Uh, he was out before I got out. But yeah, you know, he served as well. That's how we met, actually. We were both in the military. That is, that is one stereotype that I just constantly hear because we have on the, in our club, like the club is better known. And then the club like that we donate to Operation Heart First. And it, it mentions like, the military background, so they're always inquiring, like, well, what did your husband do? So yeah, just answer their questions politely, but that's one thing that I that I always hear, and I'm just like, it's not just men, you know. I was like, we women serve too. <laughs> I think every wife has that story. Every veteran wife has that story. I will say I feel oh. the same way. Like Tara, I had the same thing, right? My husband saw active duty, I served, I often get the kind of same thing if I'm going somewhere that's like a veteran status type thing. But what I'm hearing is it sounds like it's a fine line and maybe that line hasn't been met yet where it's kind of critical to have awareness and do you reach a tipping point by which highlighting the inherent differences could be more problematic than beneficial? I think there is absolutely gonna be a tipping point, but I don't think we're anywhere near it. Obviously we've made a ton of progress. And if you just look at the last like 10 years alone, the amount of things that are now available to women are massive and how, you know, just changing hairstyles and the PT test and, you know, hopefully body weight standards change too eventually. Right. And, and there's all of these things that are, that are evolving, but unless we talk about it, we're not going to be able to do it. And I think if we if we were to just say, okay, let's stop being different and let's just look at everybody the same, which is kind of what the new PT test is doing, which I'm very conflicted about how I feel about that still. And if you think about just, we're all the same, let's not talk about it anymore, then that that still leaves a lot of room to grow. I think there's still a lot of progress we still need to make. And, and in order to do that, we do need to talk about it, but I don't know how much, right? Like. We don't need to start every conversation with saying like, hi, I'm a woman in the military, because that's obvious. But at the same time, like, we have to say, hi, we still need to talk about these because, hey, I'm a woman in the military who has to come back to work 10 weeks after having a baby or 12 weeks, whatever it still is. Like, there's a, there's still some sort of problem with that, right? Like, there's still some sort of issue that we need to to address in in a lot of different scenarios, but not all of them. So I think it's important. Tara, I'll build off of what you're saying. First off, Hannah, I'm sure that's super frustrating. I can't imagine because what you built with your husband is 
impressive and incredible and you know you deserve just as much credit and it's annoying to have to be like oh yeah well yeah I'm also a veteran but thank you but I, I I'm actually kind of excited for this because so Tara and I have had some like great conversations about this stuff and we also disagree on a lot on a lot of things so I I kind of err a little bit more on the I really want to get to a point where it's a non-issue you know like I mean, it's very obvious to see right now, like, I am a woman, but that that line is not really that clear anymore these days anyway. You know, we have our own identities and that, like, what you want to be called and seen as is changing. So to get to how a female is or what how to differentiate to me becomes, I don't know if it's like less important or maybe just not as clear is something to consider. And then something that concerns me is, and it's been a, it's been a concern, I, I was conflicted about joining women's clubs in grad school because, yeah, like, cool, like, we all hang out together, but, like, I don't want to just hang out with you. I want to hang out with everybody, you know? Like, I want to I wanna be with everyone, and now I'm, now I'm separate. I don't understand. So that's another thing. And then I feel like we're isolating ourselves. And I think we also run the risk. It's a balance. Bring people up. How do we bring people up that are still marginalized? So like, yes, there are still challenges for women. I don't deny that. And like a a medley of other groups in the world. But are we going to create another group of marginalized people? Are we marginalizing men and white men? Like, I think we might be. And I don't want to do that either. I don't want to say like, you man must tell me I'm better, women are better at X because I've been oppressed so long. I want to say, you know, we're all people and we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And sure, maybe some of it's attributed to our sex or gender identity or something, but maybe that's not the primary factor and it shouldn't be assumed as as such. That was loaded, Katie. I know. I know. <laughs> it's getting deep. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Katie, I think that's ideal. And this is the conversation we always have. I think I think what you just said is ideal world, right? We're all equal. We're all different. And that's okay. But like, that's not reality, you know? And I think that's where it's it's tricky to have these conversations because there are so marginalized groups. And if you, and if you, don't address those issues, then they're going to just continue to be marginalized. So I think that's a really fine line of how to address. And then obviously, like, if you're looking like intersectionality, like you have women in the military, you have black women in the military, you have black men in the military, you have Latinos and Latinas, like it's all of these different groups of people, I think, that make the military so wonderful and great. And I think if you look at the military as a whole, it does a really good job of providing everybody an equal footing, right? I think if you look at the military, the economics of the military work in the sense that everybody comes in with a living wage and housing and medical care and all of those things. So that provides, it does provide some sort of level playing field, but within that rank structure still exists our own like social perceptions of how things can be outside of the military and and that carries into it. And it, I think we're humans, it's just gonna keep happening. It's gonna keep being carried into the military, even though we've created a, loving, a level playing field within it. 
Also, Tara, you said it's a fine line. Do you know what our government's not good at? Walking fine lines. So I feel like it's a challenge in and of itself to <laughs> totally add <to> fair. <laughs> bureaucracy, like the Department of Defense, right? To begin to yeah. tackle some of these these really big things, right? And these are conversations that are happening here and now, but they're happening in kind of pockets all across America on a variety of different things. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't bring back the conversation to something everyone kind of touched upon, and that's around why they left service, when they left service, and around having kids, and around family planning. Um, I think those are things that often don't get discussed and, and for a variety of different reasons, but I think it's worth uh, you know, taking some time to explore that. I left after I had my first daughter. I took my maternity leave into terminal leave with my second. And that was one of the most challenging things I've ever done was be a mom on active duty. Um, it was extraordinarily difficult. My husband was in the Q course at the time and trying to balance both of those things was it felt like an impossibility at the time. And I remember us having to hum the breast milk back from the field to give to my daughter because I, I I got six weeks of maternity leave. That was the policy when I was still in. It's now been greatly expanded. We were dual military. We still didn't get into the CDC on Fort Bragg. I had to have my mom come down uh, and stay with us for two weeks because I had to go to a field exercise that first week I was back off of maternity leave. So there are challenges, right? We're talking about a lot of the strengths and power of being a woman in the military, what it's given us, opportunities and capabilities that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise or kind of fine honed those skills we maybe already had by virtue of our personality. And there are challenges. So that was a challenge for me. I'd be really interested to hear everyone else's experience and how family planning or being a mom or a spouse played into their decision to leave. I thought what you said, Megan, it, the same thing as me. Like, yeah, six six weeks immediately after I had to go to like my brigade run, and I was I was mad, but like, oh, I'm gonna show these mofos like <laughs> calling me back after six weeks. But it was hard. Like, like I, 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 last last time I was online with Ben and Matt and telling them without being all weird about having to be a mom who breastfed as an S2 NCOIC sneaking into my own office for me time, which was my lunch half hour. And it was impossible. It was impossible to try to do anything for your kids to, to survive off like, you know, your breast milk and breastfeeding your kids. But like Tara was mentioning all the things that are changing in the military now, since we are in a military town, I'm like hearing everything firsthand. And there's moms that are joining my gym six weeks after postpartum and I was like, I was like, and she's like, oh, I'm in the military. I was like, you're in the military. I was like, why don't you work out in Fort Bragg? And she's like, well, you know, I have so many weeks off and I'm like, how many, how many weeks do you get? How many is it like, now? That sounds glorious. Last time I heard it was like 10 or yeah, I think it's 12. 14 or 16 it and then it just kept growing. I was like, that's so great. I was like, I'm, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I need to start working on myself to get, you know, getting fit again. And I was like, that, that's great that like she gets that time. So she, six weeks postpartum, the doc clears her or whatever, and then she can start doing it on her own before she gets back to work. But all those changes that the military is doing for women, I'm I'm a big fan of because back when we were there, they, we just didn't have those luxuries. <laughs> Considered luxuries. Hannah and Megan, that's funny because we probably all had similar stories at Fort Bragg, dropping our babies off at the CDC at six weeks. 
And a six-week-old baby is tiny. Like, um, no six-week-old baby should have to be put in a CDC at 5.30 so you can make it to PT on time. Like, that, in, in, it just blows my mind that that was okay for so long, for 12 hours a day, and then we have to pump, and you have to do all of those types of things. I think what I learned having a baby in the military was how callous I had been before I had one. I remember I deployed in my NCO. She had a baby, and she had right before our deployment, and she had to come leave her newborn for 15 months. And, you know, the baby was six months old or whatever it was. And I was like, so suck it up. Like you deploy, you're deploying, we're all deploying. And you know, you have that, like, you don't understand. Like, I wasn't like, suck it up, but I was more like, what's the big deal, right? Like your mom's going to take care of your baby. It's, it's only for a year. What, you know, it'll be okay. And once I had my oldest daughter, I was like, this is no joke. Like, just dropping my six-week-old off, which, mind you, you know, you're just still hormonal as as get out, I'll get out, and dropping it off at, at and like, you see a woman in a room with 12 babies, and you're like, how does she know which one to feed and when? Is mine going to be okay? You know, and you're like, and all of these things that I had never even thought about started to be in my, you know, just haunting me. And, and, and it was really, really hard. And I think that was, we're like, this has got to be, we got to be done with this. Like, this isn't, okay for me mentally to to do this but then i think the other hard part is balancing the long-term schedules right like you don't get to pick when you leave for a year you don't get to pick when you move you don't get to pick when your kids have to like be uprooted from their schools like all of those decisions start coming into play and and i think that was a, one of the reasons we had to leave is like i need to have control over this like I can't mess this up. Like, this is the one thing in your life you can't mess up, you know? So, so that was really eye opening for me and really hard. And I think now when I look at women in the military, I'm always like, good on you. Like, to, to raise your family as active duty, like, you get double kudos, right? Because it's not like men have to family plan, right? I know for company commanders, for example, right? Like, you have to, you don't want to have a baby while you're in command. You want to make sure you're timing it right. Whereas, like, male company commanders can have a baby whenever they want. It doesn't affect their command or their deployments, right? So there's like so many additional considerations that have to be made all the time when you're a woman who has to go to birth. Well, kudos to all of you for having babies in the service. I don't have any kids yet. I'm single <laughs> now. So honestly, I have, my decisions have really all been mine. I don't know what that says about me or whatever, but that's kind of how I have done it. And I think one thing that was challenging to witness was some of my drill instructors at uh, Paris Island would have babies and have to come immediately back to being drill instructors. I don't I remember one of them, she was telling me it like hurt to do crunches, I guess, because you have no abs or something, or they're just atrophied. I felt bad that I had to say you have to come to work and tried to be supportive. But I think, Tara, like you're saying, like, you know, I probably have been slightly insensitive at times because I just don't have kids, but I'm trying to be more understanding. I mean, now I feel like I'm probably more understanding of it. But at the time at Paris Island, it was a little tough. Yeah. I struggle with this too. So obviously I had children while on active duty and I often wrestle with like, I think what is the reality of what the military is for is, you know, lethality, right? Our primary function is war fighting. You know, obviously we have other functionality, like we do humanitarian things, but that is the 
primary thrust. And I can remember even having just had my daughter being like, I am contributing nothing to this organization right now. I was the S4 for a huge logistics battalion. We had 13 companies. We were trying to deactivate a bunch of them. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm useless. Like I'm a useless part of this organization right now because I can't do any of these things. I can't do my job. I had postpartum very badly. I had DR, so that kind of ab separation you're talking about. So it was very challenging for me to kind of get back to fighting fit, um, no matter how hard I tried. And I remember just the guilt, the feeling of the guilt of I am letting down this massive organization that I that I love, and I'm not a like contributing member to this to this team. And so I often wrestle with like, how do we balance? what we're all speaking to, which are the challenges, the individual experience, being a mother, and also kind of the reality of the situation, which is that the military must go on. And this just goes back to earlier what we were saying, very bad at walking that fine line. Um, and I think some of it starts from a place of what you were saying, Katie, is that individual compassion. How can I find compassion and still hold a standard? I think we can chew bubble gum and walk, but I think that often gets overlooked by by the military at times. So you kind of all mentioned, we've talked about the changes they're making. So one of the questions I received over social media was thoughts on the new female body armor. So all of us I'm sure wore the old body armor. So I'm curious, obviously the female fight suit thing is, is also been kind of happening and everybody's been talking about those things. So I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on kind of necessary changes, how far we still need to go there, even just with some very tangible things like the things that we wear. I remember when they came out with the ACUs that had the smaller shoulders and the less long crotch. You know, before it was like the man's pants. So for women, the crotch would come down to our knees for no reason. And I remember always having like rubbing between my legs when it was like really sweaty out. I'm like, why? Like pulling it up really high so that it would just fit like normal pants. And I mean, Matt, tell me, have you ever thought of that in your entire military career about women wearing the same uniform as you in terms of uh, size and fit? No, I just thought they were smaller. Uh, like the bell curve is just to the left. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're built for men's shoulders, men's crotch. I mean, length of sleeve, chest. I mean, everything was so square back then. But now their cuts are different, right? Like we have a little bit more, sh like smaller shoulders, a little bit more tighter under the armpits, less crotch hang, and it just fits better. <laughs> and just for me, I felt, I didn't feel like I was wearing my dad's overhauls, you know? Like I just started feeling like, oh, like thankfully, like it didn't even look different, right? Like you wouldn't notice really if you were walking behind somebody who had the different fit uniform, but it just fit. And I think that can go to the same for body armor. I mean, body armor was was massive and bulky for anyone, right? But now imagine wearing body armor that even in its smallest size is a size too big. And the helmets are, I mean, there's always all these pictures of women wearing lopsided helmets. And it's like, because they don't fit, not because we don't know how to wear our helmets, it's because they're two sizes too big. Or our bun is like pushing it up, you know? So like, Yes, I, I am a big fan of this and I think it's important. And I and it, it just seems to me that for all of these years, we've been insufficiently taking care of women by putting them in places with ill-fitting body armor and not taking that into consideration sooner. It's, it's kind of frustrating. I'm like so happy it happened, but like it, it's crazy it took this long and this many uniform changes. Like we're in our third uniform since I joined the military. 
it took three different tries to get it right and it and it's it's refreshing i think it's a great thing that they're like when tara says that the uniforms didn't fit or they were very big and bulky and awkward i i, I didn't seem to mind whatsoever i, I didn't care i was I don't, I don't know yeah I, I didn't care about the wear of the uniform I didn't, I didn't notice that it was awkward or anything like that for myself personally. But the one thing that did bother me was the body armor because it's the same exact size as the guy next to me. So that that's, that's this is the one thing that I can say, like, I'm really happy that's changed, like something form fitting. Like, I don't know if that's something that our military should require is form fitting uniforms. Like, I don't know if that's a necessity. So I, I kind of understand why it was the same and boxy, but the body armor fitting our females properly is something I'm really happy to hear about. Couldn't agree more. What I want to know is I don't know if you guys had them, the maternity uniforms, this is also kind of an aesthetic type thing, but like they probably were the worst design piece of clothing I've ever seen. And it wasn't about looks. It was about yes. functionality. <laughs> the elastic broke like after week one around the waist. Yes. Cause they had this, like, like you had to wear it up to your neck. It was like ridiculous. So that rank was just yes. either way too high or way too low. It's just very Where awkward. Where they put the pockets, I was like, this is like the least thoughtful, functional piece of equipment ever. But similarly to you, Hannah and Katie, I'm all about like, I want what's going to be most functional. And I think, sure, it's great. Like aesthetic is important too, right? You also don't see high powered female executives showing up looking like hot trash. They look polished and put together. I think in the same way, if we're gonna ask our military to be professional, we want them to also look professional. And at times that can mean kind of appropriately tailored clothing in their dress uniform. But I'm certainly about female body armor because I think that goes back to lethality and functionality. It allows us to be a better fighting force. And that's what it's always kind of been about for me. How can we be the best at what we do? One of the other questions that we got, though, was, and some of us are kind of younger generation GWAT, I would say, right? It's been now two decades, which is crazy to think about. And there are people that are now serving that were not even born on 9-11. So is there a difference? Is there almost like cohorts that have now existed in the post 9-11 generation, kind of like the, the early folks, the later folks? And do you think that matters that there are going to be these kind of cohort or generational differences in the GWAT group of veterans? I noticed there's a difference between people who served back um, in early GWAT area versus now, because just now there's not as many deployments. And I think there's a lot of people who joined in the last, you know, even eight years that still haven't deployed because there's just so few people who do. And I think there's a little bit of, I mean, I don't know, because this, this isn't me. I've just, I've just in noticing people say i served in the military these years they'll they'll preface that with but i never deployed right because they're still getting to claim to be a gwat veteran uh, or not or to be an era a gwat era veteran but without having that deployment because it's just harder to get now whereas i think when all of us were in everybody deployed all the time and it was normal and and you know you could switch out your patches based on what day it was because you could you had so many and now i think there's just a little i mean i don't know i would assume there's just some differences in, in that most people haven't deployed now and whether or not we should all be clustered in the same thing i don't i don't know and when do you call the end of that right like when is the end of the gwat era i, I don't know but yeah if you just think about what our how our country has evolved in the last 20 years on top of our military like that's a huge difference i mean my initial experience in the military is night and day that is what it is now and and it, it's a 
function of time and rank and experience, but like it's, it's evolved tremendously. I don't know that I, like, I basically, I think I agree with you, Tara. It's just, it's different. You know, everyone's pretty charged up post 9-11 and we were all alive when that happened and can remember where we were. People in the airports now don't even know why there's security because we have short memories. So yeah, I think like culturally we're probably different. I don't know. I'm sure that creates some challenges in understanding our purpose and, and how we operate and what we think is important. I don't have like much of an opinion on like what that line is or if we should divide it. Still a volunteer service, people show up. So that's cool in my book. Yeah. All right. So we're winding down. The last question I would ask you guys, would you want your daughter, if you have a daughter, or your sister to serve, would you recommend serving in the military to them? My husband and I joke about this all the time because we're like, join the Air Force. Join the Air Force. Like, every, every Air Force looks good when you're in the Army. I don't know. But if she ends up, like, either one of our kids, if they end up joining the Army, I think we'll be, or whichever branch will be proud of them no matter what. But we're always uh, trying to gear them towards this uh, Air Force route, if any. <laughs> For our, for our girls, personally. Hannah, we're similar. We're all about it. Let's join the military. I'm okay. But we always say, I would want my daughters to be officers. Just because, I, first of all, I, I really want them to go to college. And I really want them to have that time to like decide if this is something they want to do as a career and not make that decision when they're 17 or 18 like I did. But then I also think about my daughters in the military. And I think about it from the perspective of just being a woman in a very male-dominated space. I'd be curious to hear Hannah's thoughts on this because she kind of alluded to it in her podcast with you earlier, Matt, but just being enlisted, I think is a different experience than being an officer in the sense that for the first few years when you're your youngest and your dumbest, just because you're so young and new to the military, you're also so much more vulnerable to really bad leadership, I guess, or really toxic situations where you don't outrank anybody. And I think there becomes a lot more, like if you're talking about like MST or military sexual trauma or just sexual harassment in the military, it's more common, I think, and I mean, this isn't backed by any statistics. It just seems to me that in my experience that when you're a lower enlisted person, those kinds of comments or workplace, you know, uncomfortableness or those, those you know, charged side comments that, you know, people think they're okay to say it. It's it's easier to say it to somebody who's a private because they don't outrank anybody, right? Like, and it, it's a lot of work for them to have to to elevate that and bring it up to people who they're afraid of because they've been taught to be afraid of people who outrank them. So I think that when I talk about my daughter's running the military, that would be my concern. Those things I experienced as a junior enlisted soldier were not pleasant and not appropriate and not good a lot of the time, and that would be my fear. I personally haven't seen much of that in my time in the military. A lot of it was more trauma related and like suicides and things like that. I've seen a lot of that in front of me more so than sexual trauma. So that's that's one thing that I would be worried about for my kids if they did join. Like I want them to be strong, like physically and mentally to be able to do this because I've seen a lot of after effects of where somebody was not or they believed they were not and it just didn't, didn't end up that didn't end up a happy story. So that's one thing that I would worry about myself because that's what I've, I've seen personally. I'm sorry that you both have seen some some tough situations. I um, 
I mean, when you ask the question, Megan, would I want my daughters uh, to be in the military? My initial, in my head, my answer was yes. Like, I love the military and I would want any of my kids to join if they want. I didn't enlist, so I I, I hear what, what you're saying, Tara, about kind of being the, the lowest person on the totem pole and what that means in terms of uh, risk to abuse of power. I think that's really scary. And this is Women's Month, so yes, like that's scary for any anyone's daughter. But on the, the concerns of any sort of trauma, I was a victim's advocate at Paris Island and it was it's like a side duty to what you do normally. So basically I was a confidential resource for anyone who had experienced some sort of sexual assault or harassment and wanted to get some some help, whether that they wanted to keep it confidential or report it, I was that person that they could come to. And honestly, I saw a lot of recruits come in, like new trainees with stuff from their past. And man, like I felt really bad. Like what, I don't, I don't know, I guess. And, and so from my perspective, it just made me think, well, it's not, I don't think it's just a military problem. And I also don't think it's just women, but I want to focus on women since it's women's month. Hannah, obviously like we're just meeting, but Tara, like, and I have gone back and forth about this. I'm always trying to bring the men back. in. Uh, I think it's hard too for men. Like Talk about like masculinity and and having to repress things that happen that make someone feel weak. I think this kind of trauma is tough for anyone. I guess joining the service, I'd be concerned a little bit, but but I think it happen, it happens in so many places. I think that I guess that's what I would say about it. And in terms of the process of handling those things, I actually I realize it's still a work in progress. But I gained a lot of confidence in the direction of the system in addressing these issues. I worked with a, a civilian who oversaw the victim advocate program in Paris Island. And I mean, this woman was just building out a system that you could count on to be confidential and also supportive. And it, I mean, it was bigger than just one woman, but she was the head of it. So I think that there's something going in the right direction. And hopefully, if any of our children go in, that system will be well-oiled by the time they, they go in. Yeah. And to your point, Tara, so the so junior enlisted women are kind of at risk, are greater risk, right? And some of it is because of that age cohort, right? 17 to 24, none of us are making our best life decisions during that age, whether you're in the military or in college. A lot of it um, at times does involve alcohol use. Again, that is never to condone it. It's simply to say that 17 to 24, you are more prone to be exposed to those situations as well, where you are drinking. Um, and there are less protections to your point about power. So there is, so junior enlisted women are much more at risk for potentially experiencing MST. And to Katie's point about the systems that they're building out, I do think over the past handful of years, as people have brought attention to it, there has been a genuine kind of self-reflection on the part of DOD and attempt to rectify and fix some of those things. And it is a work in progress, right? There's, there are gonna be situations that happen that are certainly not handled in a way that they should have been. And also to Katie's point, men are obviously subjected to substantial amounts of military sexual trauma as well. Shouldn't, so it is a problem for them as well. Often it's not drawn attention to. I agree that it's Women's History Month, we're talking about women and 
you know, met men are subjected to MST too, and that confers a whole host of other psychological um, problems and in some ways more entrenched for men than they are for women at times around that shame piece that Katie alluded to. So all that to say, I feel like we, we talked about wanting our daughters to serve. We brought up kind of all these other things that are still going on in the background of what service means, right? So service itself. So, you know, I, I have two daughters. One of them has already talked about before we came to where we are now, my husband was teaching at West Point. One of them already wants to go to West Point. So I think though that she's like much more taken by the parades than she is the reality of the situation, which was also a bit of my life experience. I was like, I really <laughs> like the fancy things, the other things, maybe I'll leave those behind. Luckily she has some time to think about it. But for me, I would want my daughters to join. After 9-11, I was in 10th grade. I really wanted to join. I wanted to enlist immediately. Both of my parents are officers. Tara, I think to your point, they were like, yes, we want you to serve. We really want you to go to college first. And so I think I would encourage my daughters to do that. And I also know that it is imperative that we have smart, savvy, capable people that enlist because that is literally what makes the trains move on time. Yes. So uh, I say Preach. that and I'm like, well, at the same time, we need all of that. You know, we need quality talent across both. So whatever my daughters decide, I will stand by them and encourage them to do so. Matt, I know you had a final question for all of us, so I will hand it off to you. Oh, sure. This is a plant in my, in my own notes from the Instagram people. If we're looking for women to look up to who have served, who comes to mind to you and why and what do they do so well? I've been really caught up in the story of Shannon Kent. And I know you interviewed her husband last week. I haven't listened to it yet. It's on my list of when my life gets back to normal. And I think to have a woman in today's military who is operating in places that people don't think women operate still and then be killed is powerful because as unfortunate, I mean, obviously that's an, uh, it was a horrible situation and story at the same time, it, it kind of gives validity to the sacrifices that women have been making all along because it puts this person who nobody even knew was operating in this world and and it it puts her in a place that people didn't know she existed and now it's kind of like no women exist here and we are doing these things um, and we're mothers and we're wives and we're badasses and we're NCOs and we're educated and we you know and, and she encompassed all of those things and in her story I think I hope is kind of one of those stories that that lives on for a long time because it's inspiring to me that she could do all of that while balancing all of those things. But it, it's also just one of those, it's, it's a marker in history, right? That, that says that she was not only doing all of these things, but she was doing them at that level. So I find her to be incredibly, her story to be incredibly powerful. I think for me personally, any female, like I, I, had quite a few in my chain of command and then just being able to see them and see how they operate and work while I was in service, just seeing them surpass standards or women that could do things in the military that wasn't normal for women to do, or that they just went outside the box and did something better or that wasn't the norm that 
that's something I would look up to. I'm like, wow, she does this or she's in, you know, with this group or she does this job. Like I thought that was very inspiring to see some of the NCOs that um, I have personally been in contact with in my term of service that have just wowed me by, you know, their performance or the tasks that they do or the, the places that they work. I just, things like that is what I would look up to in the, somebody in the service. I don't know how to follow those two, but I will say I don't have anyone specific either, but I really like what you said, Tara, about, you know, having this story live on and Hannah, like just seeing people, you know, kind of continue to, to build out these paths beyond what exists now. I don't know. I really gained a ton of respect for all the, the drill instructors that I worked with. They're just like the machine and i have so much respect for them. I, I can't like pick one. It's not fair. <laughs> so they all get it. <laughs> I think that shows though how important it is to have so much representation, right? Because we're all talking about how the women around us inspired us. Like it's the people we knew and the stories that we could identify with. And like, it, it wasn't the general or it wasn't the famous person from history who did this. It's like our peers, our camaraderie, the other women around us that are really what inspires us to keep pushing this mark further, closer to women being normal in the military, as opposed to something that just kind of happens. So I think it's powerful that all of our answers are like the, the everyday soldiers, right? The everyday Marines that, Bruh. that are what make us, that, that make us inspired. And who isn't inspired by a female drill sergeant who just screams the top of her lungs at you and gets she SHIT done? I always think of my female drill sergeant who would yell, that we were a hot mess. And I was like, what is a hot mess? Like, that is not something we say in Wisconsin. Now it's normal, but. Megan, you didn't answer, or you Uh, didn't answer yet. (laughs) Yeah, I can answer. So I would say, man, I have like a long time girl crush on Kristen Grice. So she was one of the first women to graduate from Ranger School. She actually just wrote a, a piece for Modern War Institute about kind of equal opportunity comes equal responsibility for female service members. So I like, I don't know her. She graduated a couple years after, more than a couple years after I did. But um, I think that like, I have like a constant girl crush on her. I think she's a thought leader, but also just a badass in general. But for me, like, I will always say my mom. So she was one of the first women to go to airborne school. Like, I think that she is a superhero. She got out, my, my both my parents were dual military. She got out because my, my dad's career was kind of skyrocketing. She was like, okay, I'm going to stay home with the kids. It was obviously even worse for her in terms of balancing two dual military careers in the early eighties. She got out, um, stayed home. And then now she's like completely transformed herself. And she's a real estate agent that's doing amazing in Northern Virginia after she, you know, she stayed home with us for, for a couple decades. And so for me, it's like that, the versatility of service, right? She learned these things. She did badass things. She shattered glass ceilings in her own way. She was confident enough in herself to take a step back, say, okay, I'm willing to take a back seat for a little while, but then when it's time, I'm going to get back in that driver's seat and do what I want. And it's like that ability to, I don't know, kind of modulate your behavior depending on the situation I find to be remarkable. And I think women are often asked to do that in ways that men aren't. And they're, they, they just do it so well with such like gumption. So Girl crush on Captain Grace. I think she's somewhere doing talent management stuff now, which is awesome. We need people like her doing that. And then my mom, gotta say, she's pretty awesome. 
Mine was going to be Karen because uh, she's one of our more recent interviews, and I was just blown away by her. Oh, she's badass too. And she, oh, and, and she did it back in. Uh, she got to wear chocolate chips, as you. <laughs> we had a couple questions about, but she did it back in Desert Storm, so that's awesome. Yeah, she's also a badass. And to all of your point about drill sergeants, yes. the scariest people. I didn't have to go through basic, <laughs> but the scariest people were always the women. Like I don't know. Mm-hmm what it was about the way they said it, how they said it and how they got in my face. But man, that more of that, whatever they're doing. It's like they could see your soul. You know, it's like they knew like they knew everything I was trying to cover up. And yeah, I 100 percent agree. Any closing thoughts around the horn? I think this was great. Thanks for doing this. Actually, one question that you had, Matt, that I think every we could end on was what advice would you give to another woman looking to serve? I think that would be a nice way to round out the conversation. Yeah, that's actually, that came from one of our listeners who is a woman, loves the show, didn't serve, but would be in the same kind of age cohort as uh, many of us. I think it was, she was just kind of wondering. Something I would say, um, a lot, some of the opportunities I had was I had opportunities to do so much training and uh, go into so many courses and classes. I don't, I don't know if that's, typical or normal. Like I said, at my service, I feel like is different than a lot of people's since I was always with J2, C2, S2. But I got to go to so many courses, so many classes. And even the other day, my husband was researching something that used to be my country's AO like that, that, that I knew of. And I went through this course and I went through this and it, I still used it. And I was like, oh, you need to know about this? Let me just run this off for you. And I'm da 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 And like the, the country's history, like what's going on demographically and stuff like that. But when I went to the military, I didn't realize they had like classes and courses and training and all this stuff. But there are so many cool things that I got to do and like it's in my hip pocket if I ever need it. But there's so many great trainings and things like that. So go out there and see what you can get and see what you can go through or what kind of knowledge you can take on besides your, you know, advanced individual training. I think the resiliency that I got in the military is something that I still have that benefits me all the time. I think it takes a lot to really push me over the edge in terms of what I can handle, but then also what gets me riled up. And I think coming out of the military or looking back at the military, that was one of the best things I could have walked away with. I walked away with like the ability to communicate with strangers because you have to do that all of the time in the military to demand what you want or need or be like very concise about your communication style. And then, you know, to to have really high expectations and have really high standards for the way you do things. So I walked away from the military with all of that. But now looking back, my military service continues to help me in terms of like, just bought a house, like using a VA loan, like such a small thing you don't think about before you join the military. But gosh, for us to be able to buy a house without a down payment, is huge for veterans, right? Or or just, you know, being able to pay for college or have it for free. I mean, getting my COVID vaccine at the VA, right? Like <laughs> that's that's possible. Like all of these things that keep coming up that I'm like, thank you. Like, I'm so glad I serve. And it's just little stuff. And there's just benefits, I think now throughout life that I'll keep benefiting from because I decided to take that really like scary step. My general advice is my own personal guiding philosophy, which is earn respect. And done. yeah, and mic drop. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> I like what Tara said. I, I agree to hers too. Cause there's so many things where like somebody's doing something else. Like, 
how do they do that? They're not in the military. Like, they didn't serve. How do they get this? It's like, how did they get a house? Like, who can afford this? I know, right? Like, there's so many things that I'm shocked at. I'm like, I mean, I get help. Like, how did you do this? I agree. 100%. Yeah, Katie, you, uh, you're the first Marine to be honor grad at Sapper School, and you're the first female Marine to go to Sapper School, but you were more proud about the first point when you were on the show with us, and you just said, you know, it's your job to earn respect. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that approach that you have to life? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and I, So the Sapper School thing is yes, I am proud. It's also really weird. It's a weird feeling uh, because I remember right at the end of the course being interviewed and I imagine it was probably like the, the women who graduated ranger school and the first infantry officer course graduate, female graduate, which is I sought to be a representative of my institution of the Marine Corps and to be seen as a Marine and I guess also as an officer but I didn't want to be special because I was a female. And I think some of that is because putting that in, in my mind still keeps me a little bit in a second class citizen category. So focusing on kind of the overarching theme and being put in just the general group has been just my philosophy. And how do I do that? How am I participating in the institution of the military and in the Marine Corps in an effective way? To me, it is earning respect by doing my job well. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm male, female, white, black, Jewish, Catholic, whatever. It just matters that I earn the respect of everyone I'm working with and for and who is ultimately working for me. By doing, by, by doing my job well and, and the rest follows. And I think that is that has continued to ring true for me outside of the military. And I know, like I get, I, I realize I get a little intense about it, but to me that has just paid off in spades in terms of feeling like I, I'm doing justice to the system and helping pave the path for everyone to be equal. Not, I mean, not just women, but there is still a problem with women. And I think that's my method of, of making equality exist. So hearing you say all of that in Matt's introduction, I should have started with how would someone else introduce you and maybe not how you would introduce yourself because that would have been a lot of really critical information up front for those that missed your podcast um, oh, about kind of the things that you've done and the way that you have kind necessary. of saved. So rookie mistake on my part. That's what I'm no. going to do next time. We have uh, two other, inc- like, I mean, rock stars here. I, yeah. Yes. So that's what I'm saying. All of you, I realize now that in the aftermath, because I know all of your stories, <laughs> that I should have told you to have like someone else introduce you because you were all humble servant leaders who aren't going to go out there and be like, yeah, I was number one, or I was the first to do this, or I was able to accomplish this. So for those of you who haven't listened to their podcasts, Tara, Hannah, Katie are all first in many different ways in their own rights. And it's worth hearing their stories individually to really get some context for what they're saying now. Um, But I will tell you all this also gave me hope for the future of America because Tara and Katie, I know you guys disagree on things. And yet we were able to have a conversation about two very different perspectives. Both of you validated each other's thoughts and experiences on it. And we're still kind of like, all right. And then now we're moving on. So like, this, this gave me hope that we can have difficult conversations about 
potentially hot topics and walk away still realizing that there's a lot more that unifies us than divides us. So I wanted to make sure I also pointed that out. Agree. Thanks, Megan. I think that's the mic drop. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Well, thanks everyone for being on. This is the first time that we've done an episode like this. Megan, I was texting Ben on the side, but incredibly skillful at keeping on topic, spreading the love and uh, quarterbacking the whole thing. And uh, it was great to see everybody. I think everyone we have on the show, we feel like are friends of ours now. Even if we've only spent a couple hours talking after a brief introduction from someone else, like I personally talk about you all all the time with other people. And I bring up things about your stories when I want to either argue, inspire, make a point, or, or otherwise engage in, uh, in conversation with someone. So thanks for returning, and hopefully it's not the last time. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we make this a, a tradition. So it's good to see everybody <laughs> yeah. from all and different It doesn't just have to be places. Women's Month. That kind of like, uh, that I texted Ben on March 1st and was like, apparently it's Women's Month because every media <laughs> outlet is screaming this at me right now. <laughs> and like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't awesome. otherwise. No, I just kind of try to appreciate women all the time. Women all the but, time. Yes. Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but I was like, what do you think about doing a, you know, an episode like we've had, I think we've had seven women on the show in 22 episodes. And so let's see who wants to like come back and just, um, you know, have, have another chat, but in a bigger group. So very happy. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot.